Welcome back after a long hiatus to the Washed Up Journalists podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Legacy Preservation. We write history, yours. My guest today is David Krychek, longtime crime reporter for the New York Daily News. After turning down a police beat job in Kansas City, Krychek moved to New York to attend Columbia University Journalism School. He later joined the Daily News and was eventually promoted to police bureau chief during a time when crime ran rampant in the city. After growing tired of writing about dead bodies piling up in the streets, Krychek returned to his alma mater to teach. Later, he found his way back to the Daily News, where he wrote the Justice Story column for 20 years, during that time authoring some 500 installments. He's also written a dozen books, most of them about true crime. Most recently, he published Dear Mama, the Krychek boys' letters to their runaway mother. Also, a sometimes forgotten fact about Krychek, which we sadly did not get into during this interview, is that he spent 25 years as a frontman and trombonist of a busy New York R&B band called The Blues Maneuver. Here's my interview with David Krychek. Um, so you're self-described in a bio that you sent my way as a guy from a long line of bartenders and meat packers. And I'm wondering how someone with that sort of background found his way into journalism in the first place. What was the appeal and what led you into to newspaper writing? Well, bartenders are storytellers, John. Uh, you know, but you, I grew up around the, the, the bars of South Omaha that my family ran. The, the mothership was Darby's, which is down on Sunshine Drive in deep, deep, deep South Omaha. It used to be over on South 36th Street. And from the time I was a little boy, I'd go down there on Sunday mornings and straighten up the bottle shed and help sweep the floors and so forth. I was just three, four, five blocks down from where I lived. And, um, you know, that's where I learned to, to listen, um, just like bartenders have to listen to stories and then, uh, you know, later on <laughs> retell the stories. It's, it's really where I it's, this sort of storytelling concept piqued my interest. Darby's Tavern in South Omaha. My my family going back to the Czech Republic ran hospitas, um, you know, bars in uh, the ancestral village of the Krychek family, and uh, took it up when you know they moved over here. Um, I think to this day I still have five or six members of my immediate family that. Uh, are uh, proprietors of uh, taverns, saloons, bars, and cafes, and so forth in the Omaha area. The the storytelling aspect of journalism, I feel like that's something that kind of gets lost in um, um, a lot of journalism education is because you're drilled uh, by teachers and faculty about the importance of checking your sources and um, – you know, the way you compose a story. But I think sometimes the, the word storytelling gets lost other than maybe like in, say, a class on feature writing or something. Um, did you feel like your uh, your storytelling talents um, got better over the years of working for a newspaper? Or, or did they almost get – were you maybe better raw when you were a young man starting out um, with whatever was kind of natural to you, if that makes sense? That's a great question. I I, I absolutely uh, have become a better storyteller over the years. No question about that. I thought I was uh, I thought I was pretty hot shit when I was uh, you know in college, like you know, like most callow youth. But um, you know, in my case, uh, I I uh, went to Ryan High School, which sadly no longer exists, and I had a nun there named Sister Rita. And I always enjoyed words. I, I, you know, it's words have always fascinated me, and I enjoyed, um, you know, putting putting them together. Um, you know, individual sentences. I'm fascinated by that stuff to this day. Um, you know, and and then building the sentences into a 
you know, some sort of a narrative. And I had a nun, Sister Rita at Ryan, who said, you know, you're really good at this. You know, you have a natural knack. And I said, yeah, but what am I going to do with it? Because at that point, John, my father was kind of hinting that it would be nice if we had a dentist in the family. <laughs> so, yeah, I am so glad I didn't become a dentist. Um, I was, first of all, I was terrified by my childhood dentist who was a, a good dentist over in Papilia named Bolum Party, but he had hairy hands, John. And to a seven, eight-year-old boy, hairy hands and a, and a, a, a heavy beard uh, just scared the hell out of me. So this nun, Sister Rita, kind of guided me toward uh, the possibility that, uh, you know, I could somehow make a living as a writer. Um, she told me to explore journalism in college. And when I got to UNL, um, took a couple business classes and said, this is not my thing. And then wandered into the uh, student newspaper office and it was kind of off and running from there. Um, you know, and I think, you know, going back even to my first my first uh, classes at UNL with Warren Frankie and Joe McCarthy and um, he, and um, Bob Riley, you know, those three guys were great storytellers. And, and, you know, just by standing up in front of the class and talking, they sort of showed us how to tell a story. Um, I, you know, and then uh, finished at, um, finished at UNO. Actually, before I finished at UNO, I went to work at the, Council Bluffs Non-Perel, across the river in Iowa. And um, it sort of, you know, uh, made my bones, uh, you know, sort of picked up some basic chops for getting out in the streets and reporting on crime stories, which then became a theme in my life. I had no intention of, uh, I, I've never really particularly gotten along with cops. And, and uh, I wasn't one of those wannabe police reporters who really wanted to be a cop. Um but I kind of learned the craft starting in Council Bluffs and move across the river to the uh, Omaha World Herald basically in the early 80s. And, um, you know, telling, telling great stories uh, requires a few things. It needs, first of all, it needs facts. And I was, I would consider myself a pretty voracious reporter. I was um, an information junkie. And you can't tell great stories unless you have great facts to build those stories upon. Um, spent a lot of time out with cops in Omaha um, back in those days, in the good old days. Could literally go out in the cruisers with them, hang out with them. Um, you know, now they call those live-ins where, you know, you spend time with uh, cops on a kind of a uh, long-term basis. Hell, I was doing that, you know, three nights out of the week. Working, working nights on the police beat for the World Herald. I'm going out with the, you know, the prostitution squad from the vice squad and uh, riding around with a detective sergeant who just liked to have company and um, listening to those guys tell stories uh, also sort of imbued me with the um, idea that uh, um, there's something there if you ask the right questions. Do you recall the first time when you were out with cops where you were in a situation that, you know, scared the crap out of you or um, was kind of a wake up call to the, the real life nature of the work that they do every night. Huh? That's a good question. I would say no. I mean, I never felt physically threatened at all in, in any of those, um, on any of those uh, ride alongs. Um, the, the one that sticks with me was a prostitution roundup where, I literally was was in the car with a cop who was posing as a John. Um, you know, I'm riding shotgun, and he he's pulling up to to Hooker's uh, in downtown Omaha, and um, you know, going through the verbal transaction that would lead to an arrest. And uh, you know, my first my first <laughs> my first thought was um, these poor women. Um, you know, what a horrible way to live. And then, you know, you're, they're just trying to do, uh, do a job that, um, you know, uh, earn them a, a paltry living. And then they have to put up with this crap. Um, so one of those nights I got in the van, the, 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 you know, the, the paddy wagon van that was parked, um, basically in the shadow of the courthouse in downtown Omaha. And I sat up in the, the uh, shotgun seat 
um, and uh, sat there talking with five or six hookers who were in the back. You know, they basically would wait until they had eight and they would take them down to book them. Um, so I sat there one night for probably an hour and a half with these women listening to their stories. And, um, uh, you know, that, that has stayed with me for 40 years because um, they had a life uh, story. Each had a life story that was worth telling. And um, uh, it, was, it was inspirational for me to hear that. There's a um, a friend of yours who who said to you once that your your life as a crime reporter started or was predestined because you look a little bit like a bouncer, and um, that's a funny funny anecdote. But more specifically, did your actual size and appearance in any way um, was that ever an asset as as a crime reporter? Uh, did it allow you to be taken more seriously or something like that? Huh, that's interesting. I I, I kind of hope not, John. I mean, I I don't <laughs> think that I ever went about my job, you know, trying to be physically intimidating. I am a big guy, and you know, I you know, I'm a big barrel chested guy, and you know, uh, um, I'm tall and wide, and <laughs> I can I can handle myself. But holy cow, I I don't think that I ever uh, felt the need to use my physical size as a in, you know, point of intimidation, but you know, my friend was right. I'm, I, I do kind of look like a bouncer and I come from a long line of bartenders and bouncers, as I said. And, uh, um, I, I you know, fast forwarding a little bit, um, uh, I ended up uh, moving to New York and working for the New York daily news, which is a, a kind of a rough edged, uh, tabloid, um, you know, the Omaha World Herald was a great laboratory for me to start learning um, my craft. But the World Herald was not an exciting newspaper. It was a decent newspaper. It was a careful newspaper. It was a precise newspaper. But it wasn't a writer's newspaper. Uh, the Daily News is all about writing. Um, so I, I got out there. I got to New York. Um, and... Lo and behold, ended up on the crime beat again. I keep, I kept trying to get away from it, but <laughs> the crime beat kept following me. Um, and one of the things that I did kind of early in my tenure there, this, this is, we're talking about like 1985, 86, 87, um, was, uh, cover John Gotti's ascension, um, as the, uh, the boss of the Gambino crime family in New York City. Um, which happened, of course, famously when Big Paul Castellano, the boss of the Gambinos, was gunned down outside Sparks Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan. I was working at the Daily News that night. It happened in the evening about 9 o'clock at night. And Sparks happened to be just like three blocks away from the Daily News. So I ran over there and kind of saw the aftermath. The bodies were still in the street and so forth. And partially as a result of that, but mostly because I was um, lucky enough to be a reporting partner with a guy named Jerry Capisi, who's still New York's best mob reporter. Uh, I kind of became um, an ancillary reporter in the in the mob field, largely because of Capisi's connections and so forth. And I ended up um, covering uh, the Gotti family fairly closely for a period of time. Uh, as part of that, I was on a stakeout at, at his house. They lived at the time over in a, a suburban uh, Italian neighborhood in Queens, the borough of Queens. And a photographer and I, the photographer was Paul Di Maria, uh, were sitting on the house, you know, just like cops sit on houses. <laughs> uh, reporters in New York sit on houses. So this is shortly after I had... Uh, Capisi and I had written the first profile of John Gotti, kind of identifying him as the guy that was believed to be behind the, the hit. And uh, the Gotti family was not happy that Paul DeMarie and I were sitting outside the house. So one day after we'd been there for a few days, a uh, car pulled up next to me. And uh, right, I was in the driver's seat of a Daily News car. Um, passenger window goes down in the passenger seat of the car next to us was John Gotti Jr., Jr. Gotti. 
who at the time was, I like, I would say he was 18, 19 years old, something like that. And he and I were kind of sitting nose to nose. So, you know, this goes to your question of whether physical size ever, you know, pays a dividend. Um, so this Gotti, who I towered over, um, is not a short guy, but he's, you know, he's not a six footer either. Uh, we basically sat there nose to nose and he told me if I keep coming around there, bothering my mother and bothering my little brother, you better bring a lot of friends when you come back. And I said, John, that's absurd. You know, I'm an adult. This is not high school. And he had three other guys in the car with him, by the way, <laughs> who were chuckling at everything he said, like he was the funniest kid in high school. Uh, and, um, he left, he came back around, he rode up, rode, rolled down the window again, and apparently he wanted to um, emphasize his feelings on the matter. And he said, uh, you keep coming around here, I'm going to chop your head off. So at that point, we radioed back to our, <laughs> to our desk back in uh, midtown Manhattan and said, um, John Gotti Jr. just threatened to chop our heads off, so um, we're going to leave. Um, and uh, so we did, although the news reached out to the Gotti's family attorneys and um, ended up putting other journalists on stakeouts outside the car. But, uh, yeah, you know, so it was a kind of a nose to nose spoken threat. Um, but, you know, I can't say that I really took it particularly seriously. So how did that resolve? What was the next um, the next action? Did you guys did you and your photographer get sent back, or was that the last of it for you? I wrote a column about it. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I wrote a column about it. About I I I called uh, John Junior a baby mobster, and you know, um, and uh, the family wasn't happy with that column. Um, his mother sent me a letter a handwritten letter um, saying that she now understood why celebrities like Cher um, hated the media. I thought that was kind of interesting that she picked Cher as kind of a role model for, you know, she, she literally was a mobster's wife. There was no question about that. Um, so, uh, you know, I wrote a column about it and, uh, you know, I, I ended up, covering the Gotti family and, you know, the mob at large uh, over the course of my time at the Daily News, but never felt particularly threatened by any of them. I, I did get some, you know, hang-up phone calls at my apartment and so forth. And at one point, the Daily News asked the police department to give special attention to my apartment. You know, some of that was going on. But, um, you know, it isn't 100% um, – rock solid true but by and large mobsters don't want to bother um you know assaulting journalists because it's not worth the attention um although the Gotti family's kind of turned that whole thing on on its ear because they loved the attention they made a they have made a career out of the attention i think they've all had um reality tv shows so you, you eventually work your way up to becoming the police bureau chief for the New York Daily News. Um, what was, you know, at the height of, of your time there, what was your daily routine? Or, or was it ever routine? Was it ever typical? It was pretty typical. I, I worked at one police plaza, which is at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge in Manhattan, down, you know, a couple blocks from City Hall, near the government center of New York City. Um, I lived across the Brooklyn Bridge in uh, Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, in a brownstone. Um, drove across the bridge to work. I could literally, I could literally, it was a, it was a nice gig because I could literally see um, one police plaza from the roof of my apartment building, John. So that's kind of unusual for uh, in New York City to be able to be so close to your job. Um, right. So. I ran a bureau there of uh, there were six or seven reporters and aides, and it was in a, a little um, rabbit warren of offices, uh, the press room. So everybody calls it the shack to this day. Uh, 
Newsday was there and the New York Post and the New York Times and uh, a couple of the uh, Spanish language newspapers, El Diario and El Mundo. And uh, there was an Asian newspaper that had a bureau chief there and a couple of radio and TV stations. Um, and uh, we would, you know, we would gather there uh, first thing in the morning, you know, usually nine o'clock. Um, go through someone would one of my staff would go up to the press information office on the 13th floor of one police plaza and look over the the sheets of inform you know uh, you know bare bones sheets of information for what had happened in the city over the past 12 hours um once we were all in our offices if some news broke you know if there was a a multiple fatality murder or you know a helicopter crash or you know something else that um, the public might be interested in. There was a hotline. Somebody up in the press information office, a, a cop, would call down to a hotline. Everybody would pick up a phone in their office and get a briefing on you know what was going on. We would report that uh, up to our uh, main office on to, um, the, da- the Daily News building on uh, East 42nd Street and uh, consult with the editors up there and make decisions about, you know, who should go and how many should go and so forth. So, you know, it was a lot of, there was a lot of running. There was a lot of uh, culling of um, too much, culling through too much crime. That that um, was the most troubling part of the job. It was um, crack had arrived in New York City in like 83, 84, and began to spread just about the time I got there in 84, 85. Um, by 87, when I was the police bureau chief, you know, it was an absolute scourge, crime of almost every form um, was quickly ascending toward record levels, notably um, homicide. Now, in 1991, my Last year, on the as the police bureau chief at the news, um, there were approximately 2,200 murders. If you do the math, that's about seven a day, seven bodies a day in New York City. And uh, your listeners are listening from other cities. You might they might be thinking, well, yeah, New York City has a lot of crime. Today, New York City has about one murder a day. It has roughly 350. So six additional bodies every day of the week. And unfortunately, there wasn't enough room in the newspapers to cover all these homicides. Um, there were so many cases that deserved more attention. There were so many victims that deserved to have their stories told that didn't because of the um, sheer volume of crime in the city at that time. Um, it was a troubling time uh, for me personally. It was uh, it was emotionally exhausting dealing with you know a, a daily diet of um, of uh, bad news, you know, tragic news, grandmothers killed by grandsons for, you know, $10 to buy crack and so on and so forth. Um, uh, it was, uh, it was busy for all of us who were in the business. It was busy for cops. I had the, the sense, um, I definitely had a personal sense that I, I was losing my belief in the basic goodness of humankind. And I think most journalists, likewise, uh, working in the city at the time, and I think most cops. And I I think the police department kind of at large, the administration of the police department, got to a point where they sort of threw up their hands, which was scary, you know, from my perspective. That, right. Uh, I, I think that the police uh, administration sort of, sort of shrugged and said, you know, crack it's out of control we can't do anything and it was scary what ultimately led to the turnaround was it getting a handle on the drug problem was it turnover in leadership in terms of who the mayor was or mm-hmm. the beefed up mm-hmm. policing what what ultimately took it from seven murders a day to one right i think there was a fundamental change in the 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 kitchen tables in New York City. I think it got so bad that partially through um, the intercession of um, church leaderships and ministers, you know, uh, banging 
a drum every Sunday saying we can't go on like this. Uh, I, I know that, you know, um, a new police commissioner came in, Bill Bratton, who was a very forward thinking cop. He's still a, you know, he's still a, a sort of an intellectual leader of law enforcement in America. And I think Bratton helped. Um, Rudy Giuliani, the old Rudy Giuliani, um, not the current Rudy Giuliani, who, you know, has rounded a couple bends. But, um, you know, Julie, Giuliani came in after having been a, a, a prosecutor. Um, and, uh, you know, he demanded changes. And I think that played a, played a role. Uh, I think police strategies played a role as well. But uh, I think the fundamental change was something at the core of family life in New York City that finally said enough. We, this is not, um, this is not a civilized way to, um, to live. Um, if I knew exactly the answer to that question, John, I would have written a book about that because I have tried. I have tried to answer that question, but uh, it's, it was a, it was a, an amalgamation of a number of different um, factors. And then what was the like the long view approach of the daily news to this just huge long standing crime problem almost from an editorial point of view did the did the daily news which probably profited from you know all the bodies in the streets um yeah. did it take a position in terms of you know the necessity of cleaning up the problem or did it just continue to cover the bodies and wait for things to change Oh, it definitely was was uh, proactively involved in in um, urging uh, reforms. Uh, the New York Post, our tabloid competitor, had a famous headline: "Dave Dinkins was the mayor at the time after Ed Koch." And um, the Post had a front page headline that said, "Dave, do something." Um, you know, it was it was a uh, you know, a, a cry for help, essentially. Um, the Daily News, there was a, there was a, a tragic and um, very high profile assassination. I'm going to use the word assassination of a cop um, named Eddie Byrne in Queens. He was killed by a, a crack squad. Um, and that case was horrendous. And it really was one of the things that um, sort of, the city at large demanded change. The Daily News was very involved editorially and um, urging the police department to come up with something now. At the time, the the police uh, commissioner was a guy named Benjamin Ward, who was really out of touch, and he was he was ready to retire. He should have retired three or four years earlier. Maybe crack and the violence uh, that accompanied it wouldn't have been quite so bad. Um, I sat in Ben Ward's office once and said, you know, basically, how could you have let this happen on your watch? And he said, nobody could have seen what crack would become. And I said, um, that's your job. <laughs> that is precisely what your job is. And so anyway, yeah, a, a lot of us were very upset about what the, had, had happened to the city. It, it just seemed like we were um, we were in a swirl going down the toilet collectively. Um, and ultimately I decided I had to get out of the business. I, I, for my, um, for my mental well-being, I had to, uh, you know, stop delving in that, you know, every single day of my life. You, you mentioned before how you, your personal feelings on cops, or at least you never really had a desire to be a cop. Did the height of this, uh, crime spree, did that in any way um, kind of reform your personal opinion about members of the police force or maybe humanize cops in any way, or did it change at all during your time uh, covering this crime? Yeah, I humanize, no, because I, I had, um, I wouldn't call them, you know, personal friends on the Omaha police force, but, you know, I was, I was very well acquainted with a lot of cops there. So I, I, I fully understand that cops are human beings. Likewise in New York, there are some really super sharp uh, police commanders uh, at the NYPD. I, I mean, um, th we're not talking about a low hanging fruit police department. The managers um, at that place are, they could do anything they wanted in life. 
um, smart, motivated, disciplined, and so forth. So uh, I, I felt sorry for him, you know, t- to an extent for sure, because, you know, the, the cop on the street, and you have to understand, we're talking about this is a police force that I think at the time had 33,000 um, sworn officers. You know, it's huge. It's the size of a, a you know, medium-sized city. Um, um, you know, the cop on the street was sort of helpless. <laughs> you know, the, the, it's, it's a military um, organization, military, paramilitary-style organization. And, you know, an individual cop doesn't have a lot of uh, say in changing strategies they're going to solve a massive problem like crack cocaine. Yeah, absolutely. You're, um, you mostly were reporting on crime. Did other parts of the news appeal to you? Did you ever look to stay in the business, but escape crime and try to get on a different beat or did crime just become your bread and butter and and that's where you stayed put? Yeah, I, I, uh, (laughs) that's a, that's a really interesting question, John, because I, I never saw myself as being a, you know, a lifelong, um, well, lifelong uh, journalist, crime journalist, or, you know, true crime writer and so forth. And yet that's what's happened. I, you know, of course, what happens is you go to a newspaper and if you're new, you know, uh, you're going to spend 18 months on the police beat. And I did that at the non-parel in accounts of less and then moved over to, cover education. And then I, you know, got a job at the world Herald and they say, Oh, crime beat. Uh, you know, and I did that for, I don't know how long there, a couple, three years probably. And then they moved me to covering the suburbs with uh, the great Jim Ivy, um, which I thought would be interesting and proved not to be. Um, and then, uh, was kind of encouraged to give one of the political beats a try city hall or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm less interested in covering politics than I am covering the suburbs anywhere. So, you know, same thing I get to New York. I, I actually went, uh, um, had a job offer from the Kansas City Times, the late Kansas City Times, and they wanted to put me on the crime beat down there, which is what prompted me to move to New York, where I went to Columbia University and got a graduate degree. And after that, I was going to go find that serious, um, uh, beat in journalism that would sustain me for the rest of my life. And lo and behold, I ended up at the daily news right back on the crime beat. And so the, the die was cast. Um, like I said, I, I look too much like a bouncer apparently. <laughs> you can't escape who you are. So at some point you circle back or back to Columbia, you get into education after leaving the daily news. How did that come about? And, um, and, and what did you enjoy and, and not enjoy about teaching? Um, yeah. Well, as I said, I, I needed to get off the crime beat. Um, I, uh, I pondered a move to the Pacific Northwest. That seemed like a, a healthier place to live, and it didn't work out. Um, but I had to get off the crime beat. I had. I had been a part-time adjunct at Columbia for a couple, Columbia University, my, you know, the grad school of journalism, my alma mater, for a couple of semesters. And, you know, my appeal to, to them as an adjunct was the fact that I was a crime reporter and, uh, they didn't have a lot of ex-crime reporters on the faculty. So, um, an opening, uh, occurred on the full-time faculty at about the time that I was pondering my move to the Pacific Northwest and, planning to get off the, you know, get away from uh, daily crime journalism and uh, went in for an interview and the idiots hired me, John. It it was fantastic. It's a fantastic uh, job uh, teaching journalism at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. We breathed rare, rarefied air. We had air, air. We had the, we had uh, some of the finest young, talented wannabe journalists in America come to us. Um, smart. They kept us on our toes. It was a fairly small class. It was a, you'd come in for one year, get a master's degree in one year. Um, and it's, it was just about 150, 160, 165 students. So very, very 
you know, close personal attention. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, listen, I, I lived in a faculty, a three bedroom faculty apartment that was two blocks from my job. Um, every morning I walked across this, the campus of one of the, the grandest universities uh, in the United States of America. And I was, I, I felt very lucky. I felt humbled and lucky uh, to have that job. Um, students were fantastic. My colleagues were mostly fantastic. Um, loved it. And then coincidentally, uh, I had bought a house, a summer house up in the Catskill Mountains a few hours from the city. And my, uh, my after my first year there on a June day in uh, like 91, um, the dean, Joan Connor, called me at home here in the Catskills and said, David, um, that funny last name of yours, what is that? And I <laughs> said, it's Czech. And she said, I was hoping you were going to say that. She said, do you happen to speak any Czech? And I said, yeah, I speak a little Czech. And she said, would you like to go to Prague with me on Friday? <laughs> and I said, yes, I would. <laughs> For what purpose, Dean? Well, Charles University, a thousand-year-old university in Prague, um, was transitioning from the post-Soviet um, regime into uh, a free press. And um, Charles University asked Columbia to come over and um, develop a uh, journalism curriculum, help co-develop a journalism curriculum. So um, I spent most, I spent um, about five years living over there half of the year in Prague. Um, and it was just a fantastic experience. Uh, so having a funny last name was, was uh, good luck for me for once in my life. You know, in a, in a one year's a one year master's program, that's an intensive, uh, uh, compressed time for study. What was the most important thing that you wanted your journalism students to take out of the classroom? Because um, at least personally, I think so much of journalism is the is the art of going out and doing it, and mm. classroom work can only take you so far. Um, mm. But what? But in that year long program, what was if there was one thing that you wanted students to take away? What would that be? Um, get out of the journalism building and go talk to some real people. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, Columbia's Columbia's program is very practically based. It's always been based on reporting and writing. There's there's not a lot of um, it's not theory. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not getting a PhD in communication. It's, um, it's, you know, practical reporting and writing. So yeah, I would write on the, on the blackboard the first day of the first day of, um, my, my core curriculum class, which was called advanced reporting and writing. Um, I'd write on the blackboard, um, climb steps and knock on doors. That's, that's how you're going to find success in journalism. Get out there, go to a brownstone, climb up some steps, go to a housing project, climb up some steps, knock on doors, meet people, talk to them, find out what their stories are. And then you, you took your own advice. You eventually returned to the daily news as a columnist for um, what was called the justice story, a true crime feature. Um, tell me a little bit about that column and, and, and what you covered. Uh, I think you wrote more than 500 columns. Yeah, yeah, I I did that for 20 years. Um I I uh finally retired from that about a year and a half ago. 20 years was enough. Um the justice story is is a beloved New York City institution. Um you know, the old the old fable is that, you know, people immigrants learned English by reading the justice story. Uh it was a full page um feature in the Sunday paper every week that looked back at an interesting crime story from the past. Um, so I, it, it, it has been running in the daily news since essentially its inception. Um, the daily news first published in about 1920 and, uh, the justice story followed just a few years later. So it's one year, 100 year anniversary is about to come up. Um, 
it was just a great vehicle for storytelling, John. I could choose any story I wanted to retell, re-report if I wanted to, or just spend time in the in the morgue, the clip file morgue, and you know, go go back and unearth these this fantastic reporting that, you know, former that, you know, uh, my my predecessors in the Daily News um did, you know, seventy five years ago. Uh, it was it was so much fun. It was it was absolutely um, my education in storytelling. And so now you've you've spent a lot of the last decade plus as an author of books. You've written uh, just a couple titles: True Crime Missouri, Murder American Style. You have a brand new one called Dear Mama: The Crycheck Boys' Letters to Their Runaway Mother. Um, what what was the biggest piece of journalism that you were able to take uh, into the, the actual like sitting down at the keyboard and writing a book? Was it the discipline of being an everyday writer? Was it the uh, kind of the stick to to know how to track down a story and be thorough? Mm. Um, how, how did your journalism background impact your, your book writing? Yeah, another good question. Um, I think that uh, everybody in journalism traditionally is known, they're known as, as a better writer or a better researcher, better writer or better reporter. Um, my role at the Daily News was primarily as a writer, as the police bureau chief. I, was, I did get out of the office. I did report my share of big stories, um, you know, on the streets, but... Uh, I was, I largely worked, um, rewriting as, as, you know, the rewrite man for the big, big crime story of the day. Um, and I always wanted more information than I could get into the story. That's, that's the way I've always rolled. I want to know everything, even if I don't use it. Now you have to understand that the, the joke in that is that the day that the world ends, it will be a 650 word main story and a 200 word sidebar in the daily news. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, the, the times and the, and the Washington post will do um, 10,000 words on the main story. Tabloids are, are brief. You got to get to the point. So, you know, even when I was working as a rewrite man, I wanted to know everything before I started writing. Um, same thing with my with my column work at the Daily News, writing the justice story. You know, I could spend two days researching a piece that might take me four hours to write. Book writing, the the essence of of doing it well is having more information than you think you need. You know, there's an old saw in journalism that you can stop reporting once you've heard the same thing three times. You know, three different sources have told you the same thing. So, you know, I don't know. That's probably a lot, uh, uh, a little bit of a myth, but um, research, research is everything in, in whatever you do in the, the writing world. I'm working on fiction right now. The Daily News is doing a, a compilation of, of uh, crime fiction by some of its current and former uh, writers, including me. And even with that, um, it all starts, it doesn't start with conjuring. <laughs> it starts with having a stack of paper next to your desk um, with maps, with, with, you know, city directories, with uh, uh, newspaper clippings and so on and so forth. So, yeah, journalism taught me to be uh, precise and uh, to be thorough. And as I said early in our conversation, you can't be a great writer unless you're a great reporter. And then tell me about, about your new book, Dear Mama. Um, clearly, it was it, it is very personal subject matter to you. Um, what was the research like for tracking down that story, and how much of it was known to you, and how much was a mystery when you when you first sat down to write it? Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of interesting. It is my first truly, you know, I've written a few uh, you know personal anecdote um, uh, pieces over the years, but this is my first deep project. That's really a personal project. So yes, it feels kind of weird because journalists are taught to stay out of the story, but I'm definitely in this story. Um, my father was a great man. Uh, his name was Ed Krychek. Um, 
he was he started out life working in the packing houses um and then uh bought a bar because that's the cry check thing to do and i was a very successful um saloon keeper at a bar and cafe outside of omaha um and I, I always knew that my dad had no relationship with his mother. I only met her a couple of times over the course of their life. I knew that she lived in Michigan. Um, and I generally knew that she had abandoned him and his younger brother, Connie, when they were boys, but really didn't know much beyond that. My dad um, went out to her funeral uh, in the 1970s. She lived in Gladwin, Michigan a couple hours from Detroit. And uh, my dad went out to her funeral, and after the funeral service was over, one of her kin from out there, one, my, my grandmother's name was Hazel, Hazel Krychek Fish. Um, one of Hazel's kin handed my dad this little green suitcase and uh, said, you might, want to want, you might want this. And I uh, later looked inside, and it was, uh, letters that she had saved, his mother Hazel had saved, that uh, he and Connie, his brother, had written to her over the course of basically 40 years, from right after she left them in the 1930s until uh, basically until she died. Um, it was a collection of roughly 100 letters. So after my father died, about uh, uh, 15 years after that, this is toward the mid-90s, um, my stepmother handed me the little suitcase and said, have you seen these? Well, it's a treasure trove. It's, it's you know, letters that my father wrote as a 8-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, a 21-year-old in the Navy, um, you know, right up until her last, her last uh, years on Earth. And uh, I transcribed them. And, um, my plan was to make a, basically to copy those, to put a little introduction on it with a little bit of background and give it to my siblings and other family members and share it with them. And that would be that. Um, and I did that. I, I did the part of the transcription and the introduction, but I could never send it out because I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't complete. I knew I hadn't done the reporting uh, that I needed to do, tell the story properly. Um, so. I decided uh, that, um, you know, my, my father went out of his way to maintain a relationship from afar with Hazel. Um, he supported her. Um, he, he told me once that he loved her because she was his mother, but he didn't respect her. But nonetheless, he felt compelled to stay in touch with her over the course of his life. Um, so... If, if, if he felt that way, if he felt strong enough to tell me that I love her, even though she abandoned me, and if Hazel uh, felt strongly enough about their relationship to save those letters for all those years, I felt like they both deserved me to tell their story properly. So I, I uh, did research. I talked to her kin out there. I did lots of. Um, um, census research uh, to determine where she had lived and what her life had been like out there and so on and so forth. And in the course of reporting that, learned a lot more about my father's life. Um, and uh, it all came together in a little book that I'm very proud of called Dear Mama, as you said. I'm, I'm assuming the whole process was fairly cathartic for you. And you just kind of intimated about learning more about your father's, you know, the course of his life, did you feel like, uh, you know, the research and the letters got to know, uh, got, helped you know him more, uh, mm -hmm. kind of more about what made him tick, um, you know, yeah. in between his yeah. ears than you knew when he was alive? Oh God. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, it's absolutely, uh, it's, it's a priceless, um, look back into his development, uh, as a man, my father was a was a was a very good man. Um, I'm his son. I <laughs> I have a obviously I have a pointed opinion about it, but uh, 
he was loved by his customers. He was, he was, uh, he was just a good human being. And, um, I, I would not have gone out of my way to maintain a relationship with the woman who abandoned me, um, when I was seven or eight years old. I would not have done that. I, I'm not that good of a human being. So, um, it was, it was absolutely, um, a mission of discovery for me, um, about my, uh, larger family. And I, I was, I'm glad to have rounded out the life of Hazel because the, you know, the Byrote, um, uh, explanation for, you know, everybody knows, wants to know why would she have abandoned, you know, a six and eight year old boy? Well, she had an alcohol problem. That was the core of it. Um, she probably also had a, uh, a man problem, but, um, uh, yeah, so she walked away from my grandfather and my dad and my uncle. And, um, you know, on this book, uh, I, I believe tells the story of, of, um, what led to that decision. Also, um, I had a lot of fun on the side in telling this story because my family story is very much a South Omaha story. Um, right. and it's, the history of South Omaha is kind of uh, woven through this little book too. Cool. Well, very cool. Yeah. I just, uh, a mutual friend uh, showed it to me recently and um, it's got one of those covers that it just makes you want to open up page one. You know, there's something about it that just uh, kind of draws you in. And um, so I'm looking forward to reading it and uh, well, it sounds you, like you had a, had a blast doing it. And at the end of the day, I suppose if, Nothing else. You did something that uh, you and your family um, that helps make the portrait of your family history so much more intimate and uh, just really cool that you uh, that you undertook such a project. That's just awesome. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, and it it definitely resonates with um, it's it's gotten some publicity uh, in Omaha and a lot of South, South Omaha people, uh, strangers, have read it and uh, reached out to me to. Uh, to say that um, it uh, that it uh, they connected with it also, you know. So yeah, very very cool. Well, Dave, thanks you so much. Thanks so much for your time. This has been very cool and um, uh, first time we've actually on this podcast we've ever discussed the Gotti family or the mob in general. I think so. Uh, that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty cool. And um, uh, appreciate your time. This has been a blast. Likewise, John. Really good interview. I love the questions you ask and uh, look forward to look forward to seeing you in person sometime down the line. Next time you're here, we'll have to swing down to South Omaha and find a bite to eat. There you go. We'll go to Darby's. You got it. 